if there are some left-handed people that are being measured, you're going to have a variability in those brainwaves because a lot of the, the functions that we look at are lateralized, meaning that we're looking at differences between the left and the right frontal asymmetry, for example. You can have differences if you have people that are left or right-handed. Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Have you ever wondered how psychology and biology affect consumer decisions? Are you curious about what's involved in conducting consumer research? Well, if you are, this is the show for you, because today we're talking with a behavioral neuroscientist as she unpacks how neuroscience and psychology play a role in consumer perception. Check out the show notes for additional information on today's episode. Let's get into it. Today's guest is an industry expert that you have got to meet. I can't even tell you how excited I am to have her on the show. She is a PhD behavioral neuroscience expert in neuropsychology, psychology, and consumer science. As a consumer research scientist, she has also trained at Manel Chemical Census Center, which is a scientific institute dedicated to researching taste and smell. She has worked at Johnson & Johnson and Mars Chocolate's R&D teams doing consumer research. Today's guest is the VP of Research and Innovation at HCD Research out of New Jersey. They specialize in applying consumer neuroscience tools with traditional methods used to measure consumer response and provide actionable and meaningful insights for their clients. Michelle Nedjala, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Dahlia. This is great. So I understand that you used to be a former Argentine tango teacher. Yes, indeed. It's something I picked up when I was in grad school. I really got into it, really enjoyed it, and then started teaching. Um, Yeah, I taught, you know, different uh, college students that were in grad school with me, as well as teachers and community people. We would do performances. Super fun. That does sound fun. I'm actually trying to teach myself uh, flamenco Spanish guitar and tango music is one of the things that I'm trying to teach myself, <laughs> but oh my it's so beautiful. <laughs> like, it's just so, oh, it's so sexy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever need any song recommendations from Argentine Tango, I'm happy to make them. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if I can play them, but I definitely <laughs> would love to listen to them. <laughs> Maybe it's like a, a five-year challenge to learn a song. <laughs> okay. So today we're talking about the power of perception and is perception reality? and how the brain works on taking that information and driving decision-making behavior. What are your thoughts on marketing as it plays a role in power of perception? Yeah, you know, marketing is how we kind of most easily and most often interact with brands. Um, You know, from my side, coming from R&D, we're always thinking about product, product, product. But honestly, the way people, you know, interact with brands most often through social media or on TV or while driving home, it's it's marketing, right? So they're, they're seeing and hearing different things. And, you know, that does create expectations and perceptions and ideas and 
just, you know, context around a brand that they don't even have to have tried the product itself and they already have those things going into it, right? They've already made their decisions sometimes before even trying it. Right. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, it's building an image for them, you know, of what they, they should expect when they use the product and, you know, that can certainly bias them. So I think that in that sense, you start to really see how perception, the perception that's being built and created from marketing can become reality. Mm -hmm. How does perception play a role in neuroscience and Mm -hmm. psychology? Well, the entire way we experience the world around us is receiving information, right? So we're making our perceptual understanding of the world around us as we're navigating around, you know, all these sensory inputs are are coming in, all the sensory information, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, you're seeing things, all these things are going on around you and your body receives this information and it triggers responses that signal to your brain. All this you're completely unaware of, right? So for example, if you think about a sound, if you're in a room and you hear a sound, well, that's changing the air pressure and that affects the hair cells in your inner ear. And that sends a signal to your brain and you're still not aware of it, right? (laughs) You have no idea that this is going on, but all of this is happening so fast. It's signaling to your brain and your brain is deciding What is this input I'm getting? What is this electrical signal that's going into my brain? Um, What am I supposed to do with it? Okay, it's a sound. Oh, it's a sound that's nearby. Oh, it's something I'm familiar with. And that's when it starts becoming conscious, right? So now this electrical pulse that came from a change in air pressure has turned into information in your brain. And your brain's like, it's located here. It's this loud. It's something you recognize. Oh, it's your phone. Right. And now you're like, oh, it's my phone and you're aware of it. And then you have to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to answer the call or am I not going to answer the call? And that's where, you know, your psychology starts coming in. So I think it all works together. But, you know, that's how like the neuroscience, the real electrical activity that's going on in this three pounds of fatty flesh inside of your head, right inside of your skull it's amazing because it is, you know, three pounds of this, of this flesh that's um, just chock full of neurons. The neurons are like the building block of everything. And those neurons, there's a hundred million neurons or hundred billion neurons and a hundred trillion connections. Very complicated. So much coming in, so much information that it's sorting through and just keeping you alive is the majority of it. But it's, it's really how you're making your decision making. So when I think about neuroscience and psychology, I really think of it as the basis of that decision making. Like you can't do decision making without the neuro, mm-hmm. right? It gives me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, it's super amazing and super complicated, but also that makes it super fun. How does working with a neuroscientist work? How did, what is your process and who would want to work with you? Who hires you? That, that's a really interesting question. You know, I joke often whenever I mention to people that I used to work at Mars Chocolate, you know, they kind of look at me funny because they're like, you're a neuroscientist. What were you doing there? (laughs) And 
It is, you know, people think about neuroscience and they automatically think about just the brain and, you know, different neurons and things like that. But like my specialty in neuroscience was really focusing on taste and smell. And so understanding how people perceive taste and smell, um, you know, how, what happens when your tongue comes into contact with chocolate or when you smell a home fragrance, like there's a whole science behind that. And that science really drives how you are going to do consumer testing, for example, like understanding, you know, which compounds going together might block a bitter taste um, or might help, you know, get rid of a malodor, um, you know, any sort of bad smells or anything like that. Really understanding how you can work with human perception and the biology of people to really create that better product experience. And so when the question is, you know, well, why is there a neuroscience in my chocolate? Well, it's because neuroscience was already there, right? So in studying how people interact with different products, it's already there. Psychology is already there. And so having that expertise in those companies has become more and more important as people started to incorporate more neuroscience and physiological measures into studying how humans interact with different products and brands, um, or, you know, just evaluating other research that's out there. I mean, there's a lot of academic research that ends up being very important to product companies, um, in understanding, you know, how taste works or, you know, when there's, you know, when they're able to understand the genome of the cocoa bean, right? Like, what does that mean to perception? What does that mean if, you know, we understand more about the different varieties of cocoa bean or peanuts or whatever it might be, how, how do those differences really interact with our own biology that changes how we perceive a product. All of that can be really interesting, but also difficult to really understand and, you know, make actionable insights into that are like business decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is, is kind of interesting side of this, this industry side of neuroscience. I think when people think of neuroscience, it's very academic, right? It's working in a dish. It's doing, you know, animal studies or human studies, EEG and fMRI, but it's also very industry related and seeing how you can take that information from academia and make it applicable in, you know, a business setting. Wow. That's, that's really intense. So tell me a little bit about, (laughs) um, tell me more about what you did at Mars. I was involved in global sensory. And so that was really thinking about the global aspects and differences um, around the globe. Because if you think about, um, I mean, just thinking of a global company in general, really anyone, but let's take Mars as an example. If you buy a Snickers in Texas, where you are, right, and you're, a, you're, an, avid tex- or you're an avid Snickers user, um, you, you eat a lot of Snickers. Then when you go to China or you go to Dubai or you're mm-hmm. in Germany and you buy that Snickers, you want it to taste the exact same, mm-hmm. right? right? It should, you should be able to open that package, bite into it and recognize, no, this is the Snickers I'm familiar with. And amazingly enough, those people that are most familiar with their brand, their favorite brands, they have very tight expectations of what they expect. And so if there is something like a hurricane that affects the 
peanut crops in Nicaragua, and we have to now source those peanuts from Argentina, how's that going to affect the overall taste and the crunch of the Snickers? And is it something that the consumer is going to recognize? So really thinking about how all of that really interacts, because even the soil in different areas can affect the taste of the cocoa bean. Um, It's interesting that, you know, there are cocoa beans that are in certain parts of Asia that even have like a slightly spicier taste to them than they do from Brazil, right? Which might have a more smoky type of taste to them. Um, or if it's in the Ivory Coast, whatever it might be. So there are these nuances that really affect the overall products uh, and can really affect enjoyment. So it's, it's really important to think about if you're a global company that makes global products uh, and you need things to be consistent because that's what people expect. But I also think that maybe cultural flavors play a role in that type of decision making as, as far as you know, what's that sauce going to taste like in this country Mm -hmm. versus another? They might like more salt or tang or spice. So I'm sure that that plays a role, but I know exactly what you're talking about because I'm on my travels. I've tried things that I would normally eat here. And then I try it there and it's like, Oh, I don't like it. This is totally (laughs) different. And it just, it turns me off, but I understand the cultural adaptation that that brand Mm -hmm. took. Or even thinking that chocolate that's in Dubai might have to be different because it's more likely to melt, right? So really taking into consideration like how being in a different environment might require some changes. For example, with M&Ms, you want to be like these things stay within a signature. So you can recognize that it's M&Ms and not Smarties, right? So while they're the same like chocolate with candy coating, we can recognize the difference. We can be able to point out that one is one brand and one is another Mm -hmm. and which one's your favorite, right? So being able to tell that difference and being, you know, within that signature becomes very important for brands. And so what did you do? Did you taste all the different, like, how did, like, how did you do it? You probably had a lot. <laughs> I did oh, have to taste chocolates all the time. I, I even went to chocolate school. Uh, <laughs> Can I go to chocolate school? Oh, my Lord. I have a chocolate knowledge certificate, um, you know, where you had to learn, you know, everything from, you know, the bean and like how the trees grow to like how it's processed and all the different sort of ingredients with like chemicals within the bean that can have different effects, both health beneficial effects, as well as effects on the taste. You're really understanding like why you have to temper chocolate, you know, what makes it get that crunch when you bite into a perfectly tempered chocolate. Um, The best way I I heard it described that was just so interesting to me is that, you know, you melt the chocolate, you don't want to melt it you don't want to have too high of a heat. You don't want it to boil. But the idea is basically that you're getting all the chocolate molecules and having them line up and sit specifically in seated rows in a movie yeah. theater, right? Yeah. And that way they're like all lined up perfectly to get that perfect temper. And <laughs> I just thought that that was a really great visual to think of these, you know, chocolate molecules moving around, getting their seats, assigned seats and everything, wow. just lining up. So what's yeah. your favorite chocolate? Are you allowed to say that now? I mean, can you, do you have to be biased? <laughs> you know, even before working at Mars, I always really liked Dove chocolate. Um, I'm a dark chocolate person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, you know, I did end up stopping working at, at Mars. Um, and I did quit chocolate for quite some time after that because I was tasting it all the time. Oh my gosh. Now, when people taste chocolate like that, and there are professional tasters, they do have trained panels of people whose whole job is to just eat ice cream, right? Like for like an hour a day, they taste ice cream. But I would, you know, just mention that when they do that, they usually spit it out. What? 
you know, so they're not getting filled up on it or they're not getting the post-ingestive effects. I'm sorry, but if I taste chocolate, I am not spitting it out. It's going down. And some people don't, <laughs> but you know, if you had to do it like all the time, every day, and also eat, you know, some of the, the not, it doesn't have sugar in it, or it doesn't have the cream, all these things that you actually like about cocoa. Um, if you were to have that more like base part of the chocolate bar, it's not always that tasty. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Johnson and Johnson, what did you do there? So that really, the role at Johnson and Johnson really introduced me to the whole idea of being a neuroscientist in industry. Um, you know, I'd come from academia where, you know, everything was very like, oh, industry's bad. Um, you need to stick to true academics and basic research and things of that sort. But I had this opportunity with this position that was advertised at J&J, where they were saying they wanted someone who was a PhD neuroscientist and had experience in psychology. Um, and that specifically, they were looking for someone who had expertise in taste and smell. And I was like, oh, this is me. Um, how weird, you know, and it, it was within driving distance, wow. which was even better. <laughs> I didn't have to move. Um, so it was in J&J Consumer, which is in New Jersey. And, you know, they work on a lot of different products. They have Johnson's Baby, right, which is all the baby products. But they also have Neutrogena um, and a lot of different sort of makeup products and um, different shampoos and Aveeno, right, and even some of the over-the-counter stuff like Tylenol and all of those things. And so, you know, it's just, uh, just so many different consumer experiences and consumer products. Um, and what they were basically looking for there was they wanted someone with a psychology and neuroscience background that can sort of lead the research program that they wanted to do in behavioral sciences. And at the time, this idea was really new. Um, there really weren't a lot of companies, I would say really any that I'd come across that were doing behavioral sciences, which is that idea of really thinking behaviorally, what are the cues that are like triggering people? Like when you smell something, how does that affect your psychology and how does that ultimately affect your behavior? So I think they were really forward thinking on how all the sensory impacts that we experience really shape our decisions and our behaviors. It was starting to go on a bit more probably in marketing where people were starting to do a lot of neuromarketing around this time because this was like 2010, 2011. Um, and that whole space was really new where people were starting to think about the psychology of um, and the neuroscience behind how advertisements were affecting decision-making. And so they were really forward thinking about how this happens on a product level. Right. So really thinking about, OK, if this shampoo has this fragrance, how does that affect you emotionally? Can it actually make you feel like your hair is more moisturized or like it has more life to it? Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can this flavor make you feel more relaxed thinking about those sort of influences that sensory can really have on shaping your overall perception of the world around you. So my job was to sometimes design research to be able to test the different products they were looking at and ingredients they were looking at, or to evaluate research that different vendors were providing. You know, they have um, vendors that are like ingredient vendors. There are companies out there that are just creating 
fragrances, for example. And they're telling, of course, their clients, you know, like the JNJs and the Unilevers of the world, we have this fragrance that's perfect for your product and it does X, Y, and Z, but they have to show the research to prove that that is really happening. So having somebody on staff that is qualified to review that sort of information and help make the business decision is what they were looking for there. So I was part of the behavioral sciences program as well as the advanced technologies and innovation team. So it was really also about looking at new ways to measure things like can we use physiology can we use psychological testing to better understand that consumer experience and how you know the product was really interacting with their emotions for the listeners who are not familiar with electroencephalograms eeg what is it and how does it work yeah, so EEG is a neuroscientific methodology of measuring uh, brain activity. It has electrodes that are placed on the scalp, um, and this could be in very cheap, more recreational type of headsets, as few as one or two electrodes, um, or can be as many as you know five hundred, right? Just depending, like how you know two hundred fifty six, um, depending on you know what's the level at which you're looking for. More academic or clinical. Uh, grade EEG headsets are going to have the higher numbers because you get um, much clearer signals and you get more location sensitivity, right? Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, the more measures you take across the scalp, you're going to get a lot more information that's going to help you pinpoint exactly where that activity is coming from. Um, I would say we typically use around 24 electrodes that are placed across the scalp and they're equally distant and they're placed in very specific areas because you do want to know where that electrical pulse is coming from. So what it's doing is it's these electrodes are sort of listening in um, for electrical activity and it's measuring those different changes uh, over time. And it's actually very fast. So, you know, it's, hap it's measuring it just as it's happening. The thing you do have to keep in mind is that it's not going inside of your brain, right? So it's just measuring on the scalp. So in some ways, this can be thought of as if you lived in an apartment complex and you wanted to listen to the argument that your neighbors are <laughs> having two floors down and you put your ear to the floor and you're listening, you can tell that they're talking. You can you know it's your neighbors that are below great, you. Great analogy. <laughs> um, and you know it's in your kitchen and not in your bedroom, right? But you can't hear exactly what they're saying. And so that's something important to think about with EEG is that you can tell that activity is happening. You can tell generally where the location is coming from. If you have more electrodes, that can get a little bit better. But you can't hear this signal exactly because it does have to go through lots of layers, just like lots of floors, right? Um, and so you do have to take that information and understand, remember, as I said before, the brain is three pounds, so it's not that big, but it's got, you know, a hundred billion neurons that are all active and a hundred trillion connections among those. And all of that is creating electrical activity. So what's interesting to think about in that is that just blinking your eye is a huge amount of electrical activity. So it creates a ton of noise. So if you are measuring on the scalp activity is someone to say watching a video or tasting a chocolate, if they blink their eye, it's going to be a huge amount of noise. So you have to find a way to filter out that information, like shut off the eye blinking sound so that, you know, like in a loud room where somebody has a very loud laugh, you got to find a way to turn down that person's volume so that you can hear the conversation happening at the party. Have you tried EEG on yourself? I'm dying to know this. <laughs> I haven't wired myself up, but I've participated in several EEG studies. 
Okay. Yeah. So you, have you seen your own brain activity on a, doing a test? You know, I guess I never really did come to think of it. Kind of a fun party party thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You can buy an EEG headset. Really? So, uh, yeah. So there are um, consumer-grade DIY neuroscience tools that you can get on Amazon. Like you can have it delivered to you tomorrow. Um, and so you can learn to do certain things like biofeedback. There's apps you can have on your phone. You can put, and like I said, it's going to be a much cheaper headset, right? So it might be like, you know, one or two electrodes. It's going to cost you a hundred or 200 bucks. It's not a huge investment, but you can do that and you can use it for neurofeedback to help maybe meditation or relaxation. So you can sort of see your brainwaves and see if, you know, can you make yourself more calm? I'm picturing a brand doing a focus group on their own with an Amazon EEG machine. They, like, oh, they do. <laughs> oh, really? They do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's been something that I actually have made a real point the past, like probably eight years of kind of getting up on a soapbox and saying, you know, be aware, you know, cause there's a lot of, if you think about the different brands and companies out there, not everybody is, is Johnson and Johnson, right? Not everybody has hired a neuroscientist to be on staff. In fact, I was the only neuroscientist that was in that location. Um, so for, um, the Skillman consumer sciences section of J and J, um, I was the only one, everybody else was PhDs as well, but they were all chemical engineering PhDs. Um, so people would come to me with all these random questions. So think of the companies that don't have a neuroscientist or a psychologist, and they have a vendor that bought an Amazon, you know, $200 EEG. They don't have any experience using it. And they say, hey, look, it measures brainwaves. I can read your, your consumers' minds. And they don't know how to evaluate that question. So yeah. they're like, that sounds great. Or how do you interpret that data even? Like, okay, you see some things yeah. flying on a screen. What does that even mean? And that's, that's the problem. So it's not only reading the data. But also, how should you design that data? I mean, like you were surprised when I said that you really have to think about handedness, right? Or that, you know, measuring EEG is like listening on the floor to your neighbors. Um, that you have to filter out things like blinking or things that the lay person is maybe not going to know that you have to do. So, Michelle, what's really involved in consumer testing and how do you know which method to apply in a specific situation? So... For me, it always depends on the goals of the research. I like to start there and really think about, okay, what do we want to accomplish this research? What is the business decision we're trying to make? And I feel like that really drives how you should design the study overall. I think the most traditional approaches are survey, right? So self-report um, or maybe using some qualitative approaches, so qualitative and quantitative, you know, self-reported surveys interviews, focus groups, that's where a lot of people start. But I think in the past like 10, 15 years, people have started incorporating other ways to sort of dive deeper into that consumer experience to really think about, okay, but what are the things that people can't say? You know, so when you're in a focus group or an interview, you can really only talk about things that you remember, right? Um, you know, a really good example is when you think of like UX and you have someone who's navigating through a website, they will have people do like a speak aloud maybe, or they'll ask people about that, you know, well, what made you go this way versus that way afterwards? And that only works if the person is able to report that, right? Can they do the task while talking or can they actually even remember why they made that decision? Uh, and often that's really difficult to do. And so being 
being able to measure sort of like live in the moment is really important, you know, in an unobtrusive way. So if you can use something like EEG or if you can use some sort of physiological measure like heart rate, then you don't have to stop the person and ask them any questions. So if it is some sort of research question where you want to see maybe the emotional changes over time, then it's really important to have that sort of passive measure that you can't get from self-report or the traditional measures. So that's one of the ways in which I first tackled the question, well, is this a question that would necessitate a deeper dive? Does it require like a physio measure that can be done over time, like a passive measure? Um, And I always combine it with the traditional measures because you do have to still ask people those questions. And I like to say that if you are asking liking, there is no psychological or physiological neuroscientific measure that's going to be better than just asking someone. People know if they like something, right? You, you say, do you like this product zero to seven? They can tell you. Uh, they may not know why, which is where some of the other measures come in, right? They tell you a little bit more nuanced information about why they might like it. You know, how is this different from another product that you liked a little less or you liked a little more? Um, once you dive into those differences, you can, you know, start to shape, you know, actionable results, right? So if you're comparing products, that's another thing you want to do is make sure that, you know, you have like a benchmark. So if you have your prototype, what, what is the action standard? What is the thing it has to accomplish in order for you to move forward with that prototype? That should be part of the design. So maybe it has to be better than a a competitor, right? Or maybe it has to be better than the current product, but it does have to have some sort of benchmark to show that it is, actionable, that it's going to be successful in some way. So we don't like to measure in a vacuum for that reason. So sometimes people might come to us and say, here's this product. We want to know if it's relaxing. Okay, well, we can measure that. But if it's not in reference to something else, then it's very difficult to say exactly how relaxing it is. Is it enough relaxing? Right? We don't know. Yeah. Is it better than your competitor or better than the current thing that they have? Um, so you do have to have some signposts that help you direct you, right? So I think all of that is really part of, you know, deciding how, what's the best way to do consumer research. But often, yeah, it involves inviting people to a central location testing place and you ask them questions about a product experience or something that they do. Um, and that that's really where all that generates from. And then whatever the research question is, that's going to help dictate, you know, what methodologies are going to be most useful. And when it comes to the focus group itself, the group of people, mm-hmm. uh, how do you find them? And the mm-hmm. other thing is how do you prepare them? I mean, obviously if you're going to, um, test for, for example, an energy drink, you want to make sure that maybe they have slept or haven't slept. Like what, how do you, how do you prepare for that particular research? There's all sorts of things we have to think about, right? So when you're recruiting for research, I think you think you have to start with what your demographic is, right? So we don't want to do, like you can certainly start with gen pop, right? Which is just a general representative number of people in say the US, but now you've made a decision already, right? It's US based. It's not Germany, it's not global, it's not Canada, whatever it might be. So you might want to decide what's the demographic that we're looking at? Is there an age range? Is there, you know, it doesn't need to be more urban or more rural? Rural or, you know, does it, can it 
does it need to represent all of those, right? If so, you have to make sure you have representation and statistically relevant representation from all those different things that you need. Um, and then you have to think about the product itself. Are these people people that currently use an energy drink, right? Because if you're asking them to try something they've never had before, you're going to get quite different results compared to someone that uses it every day right? Or several times a day. So that's another decision you have to make. Are you interested in someone who is experienced with a product or completely inexperienced? And there's no wrong answer to that, but you do have to make that decision. Um, and then you might want to think about the measures that you're actually doing. So making sure if you're just doing like an interview or a focus group, it's probably less stringent on the rules around that. But if you're going to do EEG, there's all sorts of extra rules that come in. So you have to make sure, for example, that the person isn't on any psychoactive medications, mm -hmm. right? That's going to affect their brain waves. Or perhaps you need to make sure they didn't just have a cup of coffee, like you were saying before, yeah. um, because that's going to affect their brain waves. So a lot of times when we do the design of these studies, if it is a food product, we might say, you know, please abstain from caffeine for three hours, or we might say, you know, don't eat anything for a certain amount of time. And we give them a controlled meal, meaning, you know, a certain number of calories so that everybody's on the same page because you don't want one person to be very hungry and the other person to be like totally full, right? Because again, they're going to evaluate things differently. So all these things have to be controlled for as much as you can. Um, you know, even when you're thinking about EEG, another weird one we have to think about is that we like to have everybody be right-handed. I'm with Michelle Nedula of HCD Research. Stick around till after the break. You don't want to miss the discussion about age, gender, and race as it plays a role in consumer perception. We're looking for inspiring expert guests and original musical artists. Think you have what it takes to be a part of the show? Please go to makingittomarket.com and apply. Making It to Market is a listener and sponsor-supported show. Want to help us out to keep the show going? Find out how in the show notes. Are you looking for high-quality, professional-grade nutritional supplements that you can only get with the help of an integrative health practitioner? Well, believe it or not, I'm actually a degreed health science and integrative medicine practitioner, and I'm able to extend my 15% off practitioner discount to you on over 350 professional-grade brands. Plus, they gave you free shipping on $49 or more. Please visit wellevate.me slash dahlia hyphen colada. This episode is sponsored by Salve Naturals, the leader in cruelty-free, plant-based, and natural topical medicines with ingredients sourced from American farmers. These natural products are freshly handmade in the USA, Houston, Texas, to be precise. Please visit salvenaturals.com or check out Salve and the healthy living departments at HEB stores across Texas. Even when you're thinking about EEG, another weird one we have to think about is that we like to have everybody be right-handed. Um, because if there are some left-handed people that are being measured, you're going to have, again, some variability in those brain waves. Because a lot of the, oh. the functions that we look at are lateralized, meaning that we're oh. looking at differences between the left and the right frontal asymmetry, for example. Um, and so you can have differences if you have people that are left or right-handed. 
Wow. So do left-handed people and right-handed people think differently? No, no. So that's definitely like one of those. Is one smarter than the other? (laughs) (laughs) There's neuromyths that are out there, right? So there's the, you know, the neuromyth that there's left brain people and right brain people. All the different brain functions are lateralized to some degree, right? So some are, are equal on both sides, but there are, you know, certain functions that are just, you know, located on one side of the brain versus the other. Um, yes, can learning affect that? Certainly, but I don't think it's something that's driven by handedness necessarily. Hmm. Um, you know, so you do have to, you know, take some of those things into account. <laughs> so if you are a left-handed person listening and you want to be a part of her next focus group, sorry, you're out no chocolate for you. <laughs> or we have to have the entire panel just be left-handed people, there which you is go. thoroughly fine, <laughs> except it is easier to find right-handed people. So usually you have to choose one just to eliminate the variability, or you have to have like a hundred people measuring and then that becomes very costly. Do you have a minimum sample population for your studies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so again, the answer that I give for just about everything is it depends. Um, so it very much depends on how many samples the people are going to be looking at. It depends on the measure that we're using. Um, there are some cases, if you can control for everything, that you can do EEG with a sample size of maybe 10 to 15, right? If everything is really tight and controlled. But if things are a bit more loosey-goosey or there's a lot more activity going on, it's going to be a lot more variable in your data. And so you might have to increase to 30, 45, 50 people. Um, If you're doing heart rate and skin conductance and the biometrics of that sort, then, you know, you might want to stick to 25 to 35 for a very controlled study. Um, If you're looking at facial coding, you should probably have in the thousands. Oh my. Um, Yeah, because a lot of that data is thrown out. I think people don't realize that, but um, especially if you're doing webcam-based facial coding, um, you lose probably 60 to 70% of the people in your study right off the bat when they say that they don't want to have their webcam accessed by you. So, you know, the first thing that knocks at least half of the people, probably more, is that they're concerned about privacy issues. Then you have people that are wearing glasses um, that can cause data dropout. Uh, then if people have bangs or beards um, and Facial coding is also incredibly racist. Um, So this is something that's been talked about all over the place in academia as well as in industry, but it's built off of algorithms. And those algorithms were built off of white males. Um, And so it can be incredibly racist. Sexist and racist. Yes, sexist and racist. And ageist, and ageist probably. Absolutely. And like against people with glasses or bangs or beards, you know, so like then you start really losing a lot of data, you know. And you start wondering, who are you measuring at that point, right? There's other reasons to be concerned about facial coding, but that's the easiest one from a sort of economic standpoint when they see how many people are dropped from the sample that um, I think people start to question whether or not it's worth it. What other things do brands test for? Yeah, so we're not always testing for whether or not somebody would buy something. Sometimes we're doing efficacy, right? So is this product doing what we say it's doing? You know, if it's a relaxing shampoo, is it actually making you feel relaxing? You know, it kind of similar to, you know, if you buy a anti-wrinkle cream, you're expecting they did the research to show that it fights wrinkles, right? Um, If you buy a toothpaste that says that it 
fights gingivitis, then they should have done the studies that prove that it fights gingivitis. That's the same thing when they're doing anything in a product. So if they are choosing a fragrance, so if you imagine, I think, taking something iconic like um, the Johnson's Baby, right? People recognize the smell of the lotions and the No More Tears shampoo, the yellow bottle. People know what that smells like, but understanding that the design of that fragrance is very specific and that it actually has changed over the years, but it does have to convey certain ideas. And so we need to check, is it a match for the brand? Is it a match for what we say it's doing? An example I like to give is something like a shampoo. Let's say when you're walking down the aisle, choosing a shampoo to purchase and nearly everybody cracks open the lid and sniffs it, right? You know, is this me, right? Mm-hmm. Is this something I want to smell right. like? Do I like it? Um, Well, those are the questions we want to ask people before they even get to that point. But maybe even more importantly, is it a fit? Is it a fit to the concept of the product? Is it a fit to the brand? So for example, if you were to go to that shelf and you were to see a green bottle that had pictures of fruit on it and the name was Fructis and you popped open that lid and you smelled it and it smelled like birthday cake, you would be really confused and it would actually affect your liking of the product. And so making sure that all these things are harmonized and work together is really important. And that includes not just the smell, but the color, the texture, like how shiny is it? You know, what does it feel like in the hand? What's the rheology of it? Like all these different things are measured and we have to measure them with consumers because again, getting back to that idea of that perception is reality. Well, whatever the person is experiencing, we need to know what that is because that is their reality. That is what they're taking away from that experience. So we as product developers have to make sure that we're curating that experience to be exactly what we want it to be. Well, I hope we have you back on to talk about sensory marketing and brain harmony. Um, But I want to know if you have, have, have seen common genders going after specific colors or specific textures and how does age, gender, race play a role in perception? Absolutely. Um, you know, so there, there's so many different things that kind of go into your perception. So when we think of perception, a lot of it has to be with do with learned associations that we've made over time. So it could be cultural, it could be gendered, it could be age related, um, but you have certain learned associations. So for example, you know, understanding that a bottle that is got a rougher texture or maybe um, a more matte texture to a package is going to signal certain things to certain people. You know, so it might, for example, a rougher texture on a bottle of lotion might actually make you think that it's more natural, right? So there are learned associations that we have when it's super smooth and shiny, you might actually think it's a little more artificial, right? So, you know, these are just things that are like signaling to you, but the way things signal to you is because you have a learned association in your brain. So that might have something to do with gender. It might have something to do with age. It has probably a lot to do with culture. Um, So there are certain things, like you said before, about being, you know, while we are a global economy, there are certain things that we have to think about when we target different countries, right? So for example, if we think of Brazil, Brazil likes really strong fragrances. Whereas in the U.S., we actually want things to be a little bit more metered, not so intense. Um, So making sure, because when we think about, you know, personal care products like lotions and shampoos and body washes, 
people in Brazil are going to expect a lot of fragrance because that's how they have a signal that something is clean, right? Whereas in the U.S., we're more likely to be pushing, oh, it's non-scented, right? Which non-scented is a really funny thing because it always has scent in it. Yeah, yeah, naturally scented. Yeah, (laughs) and the base of all these products, if you think about the base of lotion, like the ingredients that are in the base, they don't smell great. So you actually have to put something in there to like neutralize it. That's right. So fragrance free doesn't necessarily mean that there's not anything in there masking the scent because there right. very well be. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we make products, sometimes those materials smell pretty terrible. Yes. <laughs> so, and we, we rely on uh, like the butters to kind of take over the smell, like a cocoa butter is pretty exactly. strong. You know? yeah. yeah. And that signals to you. So again, like people might have learned an association for cocoa butter and moisturization, Mm -hmm. right? So that perception that people have, it can be very cultural or it can be very age-related. You know, I think for a lot of people of like maybe my age, when you smell coconut, there are certain types of lotions and and suntan lotions that you probably are really evoked with, um, you know, which may not apply to some other people. Um, You know, so keeping again, those sort of ideas that um, perception is reality, but perception also has a lot to do with the sort of psychological associations we've learned over time. Um, Going back to the question about age, gender, and race, Mm -hmm. do you see that women are, when they make purchase decisions, they tend to like, or be touchy feely and want to touch the product. And what sensory things do you find that women in general are attracted to? Mm Mm-hmm. And then we'll ask, I'll ask the same question for men. And, <laughs> you know, there's a couple of sort of gendered bias sort of things that come. And I think typically people think of when you're looking for the household shopper, they often target women for that study. Um, so that is a question we ask all the time in our studies, like, are you the primary shopper for your household? Um, But, you know, I've started, I think things have changed quite a bit where you start thinking about the nuances of that. Like I'm definitely the grocery shopper in my household, but I'm not the shopper for other things in the household. So, you know, like there's more of a division of labor there than I think there was before. And then I also think about, you know, you got to keep in mind other differences that come up. Well, yeah, I think in general, people might say that women might be more touchy feely. They want to try something on. Um, I might be the opposite. I actually hate shopping. You are the outlier. I'm the outlier, (laughs) you know? And so like, I always try to keep that in mind when I think about those sort of um, biases that, you know, it, it's not necessarily true. Well, right? I hate shopping. I hate shopping so much. There's so, two of us. Uh, yeah. So there were two My outliers. My loves shopping. Well, I hate going with oh, them no, because I just you. get irritated. Oh, same thing. <laughs> so yeah. I think that there are some, some sort of rules of thumb that you can go by, but I think they all kind of have the same behavioral basis. So when we think of, you know, the heuristics that are used in behavioral sciences, a lot of them have to do with like availability heuristics and like proximity heuristics and all these sort of different psychological things that help us make our decision-making. They aren't all necessarily biased. It's just really how our lives are structured, which is why it gets more complicated now than I think it was before, where I think roles were more gendered before where those heuristics might be quite different for, you know, people who were stay at home moms or something like that. Whereas now where you have such a mix, I think those heuristics become more even playing ground. Mm -hmm. 
potentially. Okay. okay. And so, so what you're saying is that there really is no difference in men versus women decision-making at point of purchase. I would prefer to go back to behavior, right? So instead of asking, I'm going to focus on women, I might ask, are you the household purchaser for groceries? Um, you know, when it comes to children's shampoo, are you the purchaser of that or are you the user of it? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I am the purchaser of the shampoo, but my husband does bath time. So, you know, that's something to think about there. Again, with these roles being more fluid now, I think that it has to do, you have to ask behavioral questions to better segment that. Well, and, you know, let's just say I have a boy and a, you know, son and a daughter, and I'm making the decision as far as the body wash for the kids. Okay. Yeah. Would I, since, since it really just depends on who's making the purchase, it's probably going to be an emotional buy on my end. Mm -hmm. But psychologically, if I were to see a blue bottle for a five-year-old and a pink bottle for a five-year-old, I'm probably going to buy one of each. I don't right. know. Just because right. it might not be for me, but I'm thinking, okay, now I'm creating gender assignments based off of my product decision. It's interesting. It is. It is. So all these things really have to be thought about from the product developer standpoint, because they have to think about the fragrance. You know, the idea that there are men's shampoos or, you know, men's um, body soaps, right? Mm -hmm. That they're really trying to target now, um, you know, that have very, you know, quote unquote, manly fragrances to them. But then what is a manly fragrance anymore? Mm -hmm. Right. right. Um, there's a lot more unisex fragrances that are coming out, but yeah, they do target these things and sometimes they get in trouble for it too. Right. Well, okay. So you might see one bottle targeted body wash for women and it's a very small, petite, little, cute little thing. And it costs $7. Yeah. Let that same company can rebrand yeah. it and like quadruple the size of the container. <laughs> the woman Make it tax. in a blue bottle and it'll be $5. So yeah, the famous Big Pen, right? So there was the Big Pen that they designed and it said for her. And it was just a pen that was pink. Um, and there was really no other difference except that it was also a dollar more. Right. And I mean, Vic just got raked over the coals for that, you know? And so you do have to be aware. I mean, especially now that people can share information and make comparisons so much easier than they could before. Um, you know, you have to think about that in your marketing campaign and your product design, like what's the message that people are picking up from this? Because it's more than just the product itself. People are getting cues in all sorts of ways, the colors, the shape, the cost. Yeah. Okay. So your role just got even harder now because, <laughs> because if, if men and women really don't have different differentiators when it comes to point of purchase, you're really going to like the, the, the that's makes the focus group more important. Really. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it yeah. streamlines the intent of the brand to really, because in my mind, I'm going to create a men's line. Oh, well, it's going to be blue. It's going to be dark colors. It's yeah. going to be, you know, this, but how do I know? I'm just basing on my own assumptions and, and bias. you want to differentiate from your competitors, right? So if right. all your competitors are blue, maybe you want to be gray. Maybe you want to be brown. Um, you know, so I think it all starts with that research question. And I think you do have to do that research. You have to go out and find out, well, what 
do people think of products that are colored like this? What do people think of these textures? What are they reading into on it? right? Are they seeing it as for them? Is that an association they get? Is that a perception they get? You know, me as a man, is this for me or is it for a teenager? You know, because that's a huge difference too. You know, so a teenage boy versus a 20 something man versus a 60 something man, right? If someone was trying to do some research with HCD, what type of customer experience would they have? I think the first thing that would happen is that you'd be speaking to me um, and my colleague, Allison. So she's um, she's kind of our, our salesperson, but really our client relations type of person and manages a lot of the, the client relations. But I'm usually on that first call to introduce what it is that we even do, right? Because it's complicated. And I try to work with you to figure out, is this something that fits for you? Right. And I think what you can expect from HCD is that we tend to be overly honest to a fault. And I think you've probably already heard that from me, right? Where I'm like, basically, I'm telling people not to use these methodologies. Don't use this for this X, Y, and Z, or here's the limitations of this. Um, We're overly honest in the sense that we'll tell you not to use us if you're trying to push EEG for something it's not a good fit for. And maybe that's a terrible business model, you know, to actually be turning down business, but it's also worked out in the long run where those people have come back to us and said, you know, you were right. We really appreciate your honesty. And, and that's the kind of business that we want to move forward with where we're being honest about it all, because it is a trust relationship between a vendor and the end client. You know, they have to trust that we're doing what we say we're doing and that we're doing it correctly um, and that they can trust the results that they get to make really big business decisions. Right. So I think that's what you're going to experience right up front is that we're going to be overly honest about the tools. We're going to you know, really work with you and try to keep it very collaborative, because honestly, while, yeah, I have taste and smell experience when we're working with a client and let's say that they work on shampoo they know their product way better than I do. I understand the measures that I use all the time, but I don't know their product like they do. They understand their brand. They understand their product. And so it has to be a collaboration. Yeah. Okay. So what's been the biggest or most common mistake you've seen with your clients? I think sort of the first thing is expecting too much from neuroscience or psychology. So I think people have been sold on the idea that you can, that neuroscience is about reading people's minds um, or maybe thinking that we actually are capable of measuring emotions in a very easy and accurate way when in fact, it's quite complicated. You know, like I said before, the brain is complicated and there's so many different theories of emotion that nothing is simple. So I think there's a lot of oversimplification that has caused people to have very high expectations and that causes them to therefore be disappointed in results. So I know when I work with clients, I try really hard to sort of meter their expectations by explaining the limitations, you know, EEG can't read people's minds. Um, You know, you have limits with facial coding or, you know, really talking about, you know, when, yeah, when you're recruiting for a, a heart rate, variability study or galvanic skin response, any of these things, you have to think about, oh, we can't measure people that have a heart condition, you know, so you're going to be limiting the people you're looking at. So just really metering those expectations is a huge part of the first conversation. 
And then I think another really thing, big thing that people sort of get wrong when they're getting into this space is not having a very clear research question. So we've certainly been approached by clients that have come to us and they're very excited about using neuroscience, you know, because again, the expectations are high, but they don't have a clear research question that maybe warrants using neuroscience or psychology. You know, so a lot of times they'll say, well, we just want to see which one they like better. And I will say, you shouldn't spend an extra $100,000 on this study or $50,000, $30,000, whatever it might be. You shouldn't do that because you can just cheaply ask them and get a better answer, right? If you just do a scale question, a survey, that would be a lot easier. So having a question that is well thought out that necessitates using any of these extra measures is very important. Sometimes we have clients that come to us and just say, that's great, but can't you put some gear on someone's head? Can we put technology on their person? And it's like, yes, you can, but you don't have to. Yeah. So they're basically trying to be biased. They're trying to force a bias study, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times people don't like to, as I like to say, people don't like to hear that their baby's ugly. <laughs> right? You know, and unfortunately, you know, science it it is designed to give you a valid answer. So if you design properly, you're gonna get the truth, right? And the truth is what it is, no matter what you'd like it to be. Um, hmm. That's the thing about science. Like, that's the thing people joke about. All Science doesn't care about your feelings. No. You know? but, they, but they want and your feelings it, to make the decisions, though, at the same time. <laughs> we can study your feelings <laughs> using science, but ultimately we don't care what you think about the results, right? Because we're just going to tell you how it is, which might be including telling you that your baby's ugly, that it, you're not performing better than your competitor, or you really aren't creating anything relaxing, you know? And so that's another thing we have to warn people with. I think a lot of times in those early days of neuromarketing, you know, that made it kind of fall out of favor is that they were always giving positive results to their clients. They were never saying, you know what, your ad's just not successful. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Instead it was, they were just like really pumping it up. Like, Oh, look, there's engagement here and blah, blah, blah. But you know, everything was designed to make things look like they were performing better than they were. And that's, that's just been a huge problem in this field. To learn more about HCD research, check them out at hcdi.net. Michelle, I had a blast. <laughs> it's so much fun talking about this stuff. Really I know. Is. It's like, <laughs> as I told you before, it's like candy. It's like, give me more. I want more and more and more. It's like, it's so I can sign forever. <laughs> so can I, apparently. <laughs> All right. Wow. Thank you so much, Michelle. Happy to have you on. We'll see you again soon. Great. Thank you so much. always i hope you enjoyed today's show if you did please subscribe to making it to market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website makingittomarket.com thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app and a special thanks to our show sponsors and listeners without your support i would not be able to do this please share your favorite episodes you don't want to miss the next one where we continue the discussion with michelle if there's a topic you'd like to hear, have a question or even a comment you'd like for me or today's guest to address, feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. If we air your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a free Making It to Market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference.
This one's for you, Michelle. 